Hi, everybody, and welcome. We good to start? We're going to start anyway. Okay, so my name is Mike Colson. I'm a solutions architect on the worldwide public sector team for AWS. Uh, I'm here with uh, Dean Kalisas, who's going to talk to you about what he's done with GHU APL. I'm really excited about this project. It was one of the first uh, customer meetings that I had when I came to Amazon. Um, and what they've done with uh, their serverless capability, with our serverless capability and their project, I think is going to be mind blowing and no pun intended. So, quick uh, agenda of what we're going to get into. Um, I'm going to level set on some of the server, <laughs> some of the services that they're using, and then I'm going to kick it over to Dean, who's going to tell you how he tried to break Lambda, uh, which should be pretty interesting. Um, so, in the beginning there was virtual servers, and it was good. We were all happy with them, we understood them, uh, EC2 made sense, but as time went on, we realized that we needed to get out of just managing servers and help customers get out of that operations game. So, out came managed services, think RDS. Uh, as we went through the maturity cycle and the paradigm shift of what it meant to run things in the cloud, uh, the IaaS play, was great for some pieces, but we needed more. And that's where serverless technology really came in because it, it allows us to step away from that operations mentality of I have to patch, I have to manage, I have to ensure, and it allows us to get to functions as a service. I'm sure you've heard the, the FAST term around a lot. So what does uh, serverless bring us? Well, serverless gives us the capability to not have to provision servers, first of all. Uh, it scales easily, and when we are not using it, we're not paying for it, which is a big piece of uh, the operations side for cloud. So that's really exciting stuff, uh, but in addition to that, how do we, how do we actually function within the, the serverless um, paradigm? Well, we're basically building code, and from that code we're saying, I wanna run the smallest piece of my application at the exact time that it's gonna be called, and then turn it off, right? We don't wanna continue running that service. So lowers our security vector that we can be attacked on, uh, improves our, our overall security posture, um, and takes away from that, that constant uh, operational challenge. And I'm gonna mention operational challenges a lot because that's really what we're trying to drive away from. So AWS Lambda is obviously our, our serverless uh, service that's out there for you, uh, one of many actually now. Uh, as you've heard through the announcements this week. Um, it allows you to go through and say, I'm gonna drop my operations management, I'm gonna provision, uh, buy this by the actual utilization, five minute bursts of uh, compute. It's still running underlying on servers, but you're not having to worry about what that instance looks like. Um, you're looking at it from, okay, how much CPU do I need? How much networking am I gonna leverage? And, and what's that uh, memory gonna look like? And then how many requests are we gonna see run? Now, when you start thinking about what this means and we're splitting out an application and we're going to the serverless capability, we, we think that, okay, we could start with one and that's how a lot of people start. We're gonna start really, really tiny. We're gonna have one function that we're gonna call and that function's gonna do X. Well. What quickly happens is we realize that that function can call other functions, and now we're triggering new events. And as we're triggering off of that last function, it starts to get even more complex because we keep building these functions and we're shutting down servers and we're getting really excited about what servers can do, right? And then we say, well, hey, what if we actually started dumping this into a database? That's kind of cool. 
And what if we take that data and we have a queue for it? Because now we have so much data that's coming up, we need to keep moving it around and we have to figure out, all right, now the next function's gonna be called, how do we get that going? Well, all of this gets a little complex to manage, right? So that's where step functions comes in. So step functions allows us to coordinate and manage the way that an application state runs. And it allows us to kind of build out a script-like equivalency to how we wanna run through our process and have that order and, and um, soup to nuts run through of our, our functions. So it allows for productivity, step functions, awesome at helping with the distributed components piece. It's awesome for agility. It's gonna allow us to debug faster because we can actually track where something's happening in the chain. And it allows for resiliency because before, you know, we weren't, we'd have the Lambda function run, but if it didn't complete the, the job, how would we know? We needed to be able to dig in a little bit more and we needed maybe to be able to kick it off again if it, if it didn't happen or we didn't get the expected result. So within the, uh, the life cycle of a step function, we're gonna define a workflow. Um, a workflow is really just a series of steps that we're gonna go through. Uh, we can set the transition period as we go through each step. Um, this is called a state transition. We're really good at naming things in Amazon, as you know. Uh, and as we move through these, these state, state functions, it's all through JSON like you're used to, uh, building with a CloudFormation template. And it allows us to, to actually define each phase and then monitor and execute and evaluate as we roll through our step function process. So another service that uh, Dean and um, GHVPL brought to bear was Dynamo. So you're familiar with Dynamo. I'm sure you've been listening to it a lot this week. Uh, so it's a NoSQL database service. It's a fully managed service. Uh, there's no administration necessary. And it's really, really low single digit millisecond latency. So it'll scale on demand. You, you don't have to worry about the management piece and it's gonna give you the, the required resources when you need it. Um, so what do you use DynamoDB for? Well, anything you're gonna use a NoSQL database for, you can manage it for key pairings. Uh, you can have just standard uh, table sets in there. You can have re-indexed um, key pairing. You can do uh, document management, even including your JSON documents and it's gonna scale as, as you need it. So, I went as fast as I could to give this guy as much time as possible, so I'm gonna introduce Dean now, and he's gonna take it away. Thanks, Mike. So like you said, my name is Dean Klesis, and um, I'm gonna be talking to you today about a project we've been working on for a while. It's really exciting stuff. Um, so I've recently left Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory for a small startup, a small data science company that we started. Um, but before that, I spent about six or seven years at JHUAPL, worked on lots of different things, but we spent a lot of time in this new field of high-resolution um, connectomics, where we're trying to do high-resolution brain mapping for various reasons. And today we're gonna talk about kind of a culmination of a lot of that work. That's a large program that we helped support that's part of the Brain Initiative, and you know the system we built and all the lessons we learned there. So, this program, it's called uh, IARPA Microns. Uh, IARPA is the Intelligence Advanced Research Project Activity. It's kind of like the, they fund a lot of advanced research for the intelligence community. Um, the program is currently being run by David Markowitz. It's in its second phase. And you know, what this program sets out to do 
is revolutionize machine learning by trying to understand how the brain works. If we can understand representations, transformations, learning roles employed by the brain, maybe we can make you know, smarter machine learning algorithms. And, and we're not talking about copy-paste brain to computer, but more can we constrain these models with something that's more biologically plausible. Um, obviously, it works pretty well. Maybe we can learn a little bit about how you know, the biology works and, and implement better architectures for machine learning. Um, and so what was interesting about this program, it's, it's definitely designed to be this dialogue and this structured you know, exchange between computer science, data science, neuroscientists, physicists, this large uh, multidisciplined project because of all the technology development that's required um, to kind of do the work they're setting out to do. And so the way this thing is set up is you know, these teams propose, there's about 30 some organizations we'll talk about at the end. Um, they propose some machine learning framework that they think might be you know, neurally plausible. They actually create a behavior experiment with some animal model, so like a mouse or a rat uh, that gets trained to do something, and then they image that animal's brain while it's alive doing that activity, probably learning or, or some sort of um, object recognition or something like that. Um, and then they actually take the brain out, image it structurally, put it all together and have to co-register as multimodal data sets that get huge and try to extract um, you know, what's the network graph of those neurons, how do those neurons fire, and try to use that to better understand what's going on um, in the brain during some you know, learning task or something like that. And so, very challenging problem. Um, so IARPA dumped a bunch of money into it, kind of boosted this field forward, which is really exciting. Um, and so this program set up to be this iterative thing. So phase one, everyone did uh, you know, 100 cubic microns of tissue, and now we're in phase two, and you kind of re redo the whole process at a cubic millimeter. And that's where things get challenging, and that's kind of why we had to, to um, spend all this effort to build out this infrastructure. And so you know, this stuff has been, happen has been talked about a lot. There's been all kinds of programs to try to make you know, biologically inspired machine learning. Um, they don't haven't been very fruitful. Um, you know, in most neural networks, you don't consider them now to be neurally inspired. I mean, they, they are considered to be neurally inspired, but they're not uh, biofidelic or, or neurally plausible. And what we mean by that is, um, you know, the operations that current uh, neural networks use, aren't, there's no known way to implement that in biology. So we're doing some tricks, we're doing something that works and is reasonable, but it's not the same. And, and, and so the whole idea is that maybe there's something to learn there. And so previous programs have kind of looked at kind of a zoomed out view of the brain or maybe a very zoomed in view because that's kind of what we were able to do until today. Um, we couldn't really interrogate what we call this meso scale. So on the order of 100, 1,000 to like a million neurons, something like a cubic millimeter of brain, like we just haven't had the technology until very recently to be able to do this. Um, and so this program's unique in that it goes after that mesoscale for the first time, does a co-registration of structure and um, function together, um, and you know, lets the researchers actually measure what's going on in the brain. And so what's exciting about this is there's this theory that you know, the brain is set up with these things they call them cortical columns, where on the order of a cubic millimeter, you've got these repeating motifs of some sort of circuits that do some sort of magical things that we don't quite understand yet, and so if we can actually look at it for the first time, we'll learn lots of new informa information. And so what this is a, pic a video of is actually um, a 3D volume of tissue in an alive animal that was um, collected at Cornell and Baylor um, as part of this program. And what you see there is those little flashes of green are actually neurons firing. That's 
in the animal alive doing some tasks, you can see um, you know, these neurons are firing. And when you just look at it as a, at a picture, it's kind of cool, not necessarily useful, but if you do a lot of data analysis on this, you can actually start to understand um, you know, what, those, what these circuits are starting to do. So when I say functional imaging, we're measuring actually what each individual neuron is doing at a single neuron level. And like I said, this is a 3D, multi-channel, time-series data set, so as you collect the long videos of, the, of, of this type, it starts adding up, starts getting difficult to store, getting difficult to analyze, so you need to do something to help that. Uh, then, like I said, after you image it while well, the animal's alive and you sacrifice it and take a little piece of brain out, chop it up really, really small, and you actually image with an electron microscope every single slice. These are 40 nanometer slices cut with like a, a diamond knife, and so you can see this resolution here is actually showing an individual synapse. So that's where two neurons actually meet and exchange information. And this was done by taking a piece of tissue and cutting it with a diamond knife that's been sharpened to like approximately an atom thick. And you're sh shaving off these 40 nanometer slices. They're floating on the surface tension of the water in this little boat you see. They're getting picked up at the very bottom of that video with some tape. Um, this is a video by Jeff Flickman, Bobby Casturi, and Daniel Berger in, at Harvard University as part of this program. And you can see as we zoom in on one of these dyes, the incredible resolution that you can get by using this imaging technique. And while that's awesome, it's a pain for us because one of these data sets that they're, about to, that they're collecting right now is around two to two and a half petabytes. That's a single 3D registered image volume. So um, you need to do some sort of analysis to reconstruct that graph, to trace every neuron, to find every synapse. And so the challenge is not just how do I store it on disk, but how do I store it, make it accessible, provide an interface for machine learning algorithms to actually go through this data and automatically segment everything and extract all the information because um, at two to two and a half petabytes, these data sets that are being generated right now are so large that we probably think no human is ever gonna actually look at it. It's so big and so dense um, you have to rely on you know, machine learning and AI and computer vision to actually analyze the data for you. And um, so in these volumes that are being created right now, it's gonna be about 100,000 neurons, maybe like 100 million synapses. Um, and what's interesting is each one of these little voxels, so each, each pixel in that image is uh, four by four by 30 nanometers or 40 nanometers depending on the technology in use. Um, so it's incredibly high resolution. And then the final thing of why this is so cool, and I took some time to explain all this because it is so cool, but also kind of motivates why we're doing all this and why we had to build so much work, is this, this actual ability to co-register. So these teams now are actually taking data from that first data set, the functional image, which is a light microscopy technique, and co-registering it with this other structural imaging data set. And so you can see the red lining up that is actually highlighting blood vessels so that White there, this is an x-ray of, of a piece of tissue. You can see the vasculature going into the brain, and you pop on that green and red, and that's actually this other data set from the same animal at the same exact spot. Um, and this is a, a very new and unique capability, and to do it at scale is what the challenge is and what's very unique about this program. And so for the first time, you know, researchers are gonna be able to have some idea of the stimulus or the input to the system. They're gonna be able to know the behavior or the output of the system. They're gonna know the connectome, which is the circuit diagram, and the activity, which you can kind of think of as like the voltages. And possibly with all this information at scale, for the first time, you'll be able to learn something new and unique and useful to constrain these models and better understand how, how learning works in the brain. And so 
Um, why do we think we can do this now? Why is this program finally getting off the ground? And it's because basically technology advancements in engineering. So tons of work on this program was done on the engineering side, especially on all the microscopy, all the advances required there to just scale out the whole process. Um, increased computing power has finally enabled this automated analysis, and the, the automated analysis methods are finally getting good enough to be able to actually analyze the data. So we now have you know, deep learning and GPUs to, to, to be able to do all the image processing, which wasn't really available before now. Um, reduced storage costs because it's regenerating an incredible amount of data. And uh, you know, by moving everything to the cloud, it gives us this ability to scale when needed and facilitate sharing of this large distributed program. And so um, what we did to kind of deal with this problem, so we have this, this issue of we need to store it's spatial, multidimensional data, it's big, it needs to be analyzed and read uh, by computer vision algorithms and results written back, it needs to be visualized in a browser and collaboratively shared. And so we built this system, uh, we call it the BOSS, uh, for Block and Object Storage Service, because you have to have an acronym. Um, and so what this is is this multi-dimensional database system that we've we, we kind of provide as a managed service uh, for the teams on, on Amazon. And Kind of what this is illustrating is, you know, data comes off of a microscope, it comes off on these, as these two-dimensional images, it gets registered, and we dice it up and store it in this internal representation we call a cuboid, which is, you know, reformat the data into a small three-dimensional matrix that we then can store in S3, index with Dynamo, and then we can do arbitrary retrieval of any sub-volume within this data set. You want to go, you know, do a cutout over here, or over there, or a slice, or in any dimension, we can go and get that data pretty quickly um, and serve it back to the user. We also store what we call annotations, which is basically a unique identifier on any, any voxel. So you did some computer vision algorithm, you say this is a synapse, this is a neuron, this is something I care about, and you can actually label the data and store that all co-registered in the same space and visualize it, and we'll actually see that towards the end um, in a demo. So this is our high-level system architecture, and it's more of like the high-level engineering system architecture, this is like a marketing diagram, um, but there is a bunch of simplification that was done here. Um, but the way the system works is we run a single sign-on service that's used for all the applications that want to integrate with the boss, and so we use Keycloak, which is kind of an open source um, SSO provider, and we run that in a high availability um, kind of setup with uh, using MySQL on the back end and behind the load balance and all of that, and we, we, we then use that to authenticate requests to our API, to our visualization tools. Other users can build tools that, that work off of this database um, and, and just share credentials and get roles and just um, you know, integrate right in because we, we just built it from day one off of this uh, single sign-on service. We currently use Vault as our secret store, so we run that. Um, the whole thing sits in a VPC with a Bastion server, and we spent a lot of time building a lot of uh, developer automation, which is incredibly useful. So, you know, with a single command line, you can spin up a little developer stack that's the entire system. You know, as you get more complicated, it gets really hard to, you know, develop, let alone maintain it. And so, you know, our automation will spin all this up for a user in their own little VPC. Um, and then to the left is the primary system where we have. Uh, a load ba balancer sitting in front of a, you know, auto-scaling fleet of EC2 instances that serve our API, um, a REST API, and then is kind of the core uh, data infrastructure where we use Redis uh, to track state and do some caching so we can get really fast um, response for 
commonly accessed data. There's you know, a couple different access patterns. You know, it's always challenging to kind of model your users when you're designing a system. Um, we've been doing this for a little while. Previous to this project, um, there is something called the Open Connectome Project, which then turned into this thing called Neurodata at Johns Hopkins, kind of one of our key collaborators, where a lot of this underlying concepts of how to represent the data and index the data was originally developed. And um, you know, so we have an a uh, REST API that kind of models a lot of that same interactions that we've done in the past. Um, and so also the interesting thing is we, we, we use Lambda and SQS to shuttle data between S3 and this cache. So if uh, you, a common thing is there might be some really interesting region of the data and the researchers share it amongst themselves and look at it in the viewer and so this thing gets read over and over and over and so instead of going and reading it out of S3 every time and reformatting it, we just keep it loaded, decompressed in, in Redis and can serve it out real fast like a viz tool, for example. Um, and we do all of that uh, eviction and migration and all of that using Lambda and SQS between um, S3 and this Redis layer. It's kind of like the high level core system and then there's a whole bunch of other peripheral services that we built uh, mainly using serverless technology to kind of add functionality and that's kind of what we're really gonna drill into today. So um, like I said, the boss is accessible through a version REST API and we don't need to really go into much of this in detail but you know, we have the ability to create users and manage users and we have a, an abstraction on how you organize the data and all of that and manage that and you can get arbitrary volumes and our objects and tiles um, which is like a 2D image that gets rendered as an actual image. Uh, but the two things we're gonna kind of dig in today a little bit are this service we call like the downsample service and um, which we use to build a, a resolution hierarchy. So kind of like if you think of Google Maps and you zoom in and out and you get big tiles and small tiles, um, how can you do that efficiently at scale? Um, and then our ingest service, which is how we shuttle you know, data from a microscope stored in some crazy arbitrary way at some university and how do you get that into the cloud, into the system, and how do you do that quickly when you have to do two petabytes? Um, and so, you know, we do, while well, we run some EC2 instances for some certain pieces of the architecture like you saw, uh, we do leverage serverless and a lot of Amazon managed services a lot because, you know, it makes you go faster and it deals with a lot of our challenges of scale and also managing our cost. This is, you know, a government funded project. We have a budget to start and your film was designed to that budget and so managing costs is really important. Um, making sure that you can meet the needs of the teams because there's also this interesting deadline situation you deal with where everybody has the same deadline so everybody needs capacity at the same time. So how do you build something that can scale well? Um, and so we use Dynamo heavily for all of our indexing. Um, we use Lambda heavily for downsampling ingest and moving cache data around and DNS updates, and we're gonna go into downsampling and ingest in detail. Uh, we use SQS a lot. We wrote a lot of our own um, workflows with SQS and Lambda, because high reliable execution of Lambda was important to us. Um, we, we, the system runs essentially eventually consistent, so someone posts some data and we say, we got it, and so that we don't block on the user side so they can keep going, but that data still needs to make its way through Lambda and do some other things, and so um, we built a lot of highly reliable workflows using SQS to make sure that we never lose a Lambda function if it fails, um, and then step functions came out, and we'll talk about step functions a little bit, which really can simplify that workflow a lot for you. Um, you know, if you roll it yourself, you gotta spin up a 
SQSQ, and then you gotta do a dead letter queue, or you can do now with Lambda, um, also has dead letter queues natively within the application, uh, within Lambda. Um, but kind of, we did that ourselves about a year and a half ago. Um, and then uh, step functions we'll talk about, and obviously we use S3 for our scale out storage, object storage. Um, so kind of a quick aside on step functions, because, um, you know, we, when they were announced last year at reInvent, yeah, announced last year at reInvent, I was like, oh, this is cool. We did a lot of this ourselves. We should try using it. Um, and one of our engineers, Derek, who I was like, go look into this, he looked at it and found it hard to use because of um, both from maintaining the JSON spec and actually writing it. And he's like, I'm gonna make a tool. And then he made this awesome um, library. We call it Heaviside. Uh, so it's a Python library and a DSL, so a domain-specific language that's much simpler way to write and maintain your step functions. And the compiler then generates the JSON that the step function um, application expects. And so uh, that DSL and compiler greatly simplifies writing and maintaining your step functions. Um, and what's also nice is it has a built-in, some built-in tools and helper functions for creating and executing step functions, uploading them and configuring them, um, and a framework for running activity servers. Um, activities are a way to use the step function um, infrastructure, but run your own server. So, you, so if you have some really long-running process, for example, um, and you can't run it in Lambda because it's gonna time out, you can run an activity server temporarily and kick that to, to uh, that it will still use that same infrastructure of, of scheduling it within a step function, um, which is very useful for certain, certain cases. And so um, we built this tool, it's open source, it's all in Python. Um, we'll talk about more at the end, but it's called Heaviside, it's in our GitHub repository. Um, feel free to use it, we've gotten some, some use and feedback from people in the community, which has been good, um, and we find it useful. So, like I said, this is, this is an example script. This is actually, this is a workflow we use um, when somebody deletes a project in our system, that means we gotta go delete all this stuff. There's cuboid data in S3, there's annotations in this database, there's um, stuff in a SQL database, like how do you go remove all that? Uh, and you could be deleting tens of terabytes, hundreds of terabytes, so it's gonna take a while maybe. And so we use step function, we have a step function that does this, you know, runs through the state machine of, you know, deleting the metadata, finding all the cubes, kicking deletion of all those cubes to a, a you know, a bunch of Lambda functions that go and delete all those, uh, all the data out of S3, because it might take a while. And so on the left is our heavy side script that's um, mostly comments, actually, if you would look at it, it's a pretty simple way to declare, like, you know, run these three things in parallel, retry with this back off. Um, you know, if this happens, if an error occurs, go do this. And then the thing in the middle that you can't read because it's so long is the JSON for the step function. And the thing on the far right is actually that step function visualized in the state machine uh, little widget they have in the console. And so uh, this is really useful for us. We use it uh, regularly still. Um, so if you are interested in playing around with step functions, I recommend checking it out. Let us know what you think. It's, it's pretty useful. Um, so with that in mind, let's talk a little bit about this, this downsample workflow, which is a pretty easy a pretty easy, you know, conceptually thing to do, and uh, a good example of how we use step functions. So, uh, so for this use case, the data comes in at native resolution. It comes in, um, you know, off the microscope, registered. It's big, 
and we need to then build this resolution hierarchy so you can zoom out effectively. Like you would, like I said, like in a Zoom Google Maps, or you want to analyze the data at a lower resolution than native because um, you know you want to save compute time. You don't need all the the resolution. You don't need all the details. Um, so to do that, you essentially need to pass the whole data set through some downsample process that's going to take the data and interpolate and write new data out and update indexes. Um, and so what's unique about this is it runs infrequently. It's basically once a, a user's done uploading a data set, it runs, but it's triggered by a user, so you don't know when it's going to happen. You can't plan for it. Um, they're going to upload something and say downsample, and it's going to to kick off. Um, and so we wanted to build something that just could be you know, consume no resources when no one's using it, but when someone does go to use it, it could scale from you know, two gigabytes to two petabytes. And so what we ended up doing was using a step function to manage this process of iteratively downsampling, and then just a bunch of Lambda functions to go get the data, downsample, write the data back to S3. Um, and so why this was good for us is it, you know, we don't have to worry about, about high availability, we don't have to worry about servers keeping them up in case somebody happens to want to downsample something, um, you know, it scales massively for a short period of time. Uh, we have a pretty high limit on our Lambda capacity because we, we let that thing fan out and run real fast, and then, you know, it's done. And so, kind of the result of this would be something like you've got this full resolution electron microscopy image, and then you have to create, so you take those two petabytes, and then you process that, and you create a 500, you know, terabyte version, and then you process that, and you create 128, and so on. And so the step function is actually quite simple up in that top corner. It just iteratively loops, calling lambda functions until it's done, checking if it needs to you know, increment how much it's downsampling from. Um, and then you, know, you let this thing run, and after a little while, you have the full resolution hierarchy um, available. And, and in our system, as soon as the data is written, it's available. So um, as this thing's running, you could go in the viewer, and you'll start zooming out, and you'll start seeing uh, like the lower res data show up, um, which is kind of cool. And so kind of digging into how this actually works is, you know, user makes an API call, so they hit our, that's one request that goes to a server we actually have to make sure is live, and then from that point on, it's all just on AWS infrastructure um, running in the step function. So uh, the step function starts at base resolution, kicks off a bunch of Lambda functions that ask this index table, is there a cube here that I should downsample? If it is, you know, in parallel, all these Lambda functions then download four cubes of data, turn them into one cube of data, write it back, and then update that index table saying that this new data is available. Um, and this just happens iteratively in parallel until it's done. And because of the step function, um, it'll ensure the la uh, Lambda function is complete. If a Lambda function fails, it'll retry it with some back off for a certain amount of time before it fails completely, and all that's really managed for you if you use step functions and set them up properly, which is very nice. It kind of simplifies some of the, the bookkeeping you need to do to make sure that every, all the data runs through. Because uh, the last thing you want is you zoom in. We did have a bug at one point um, when we first implemented this where you'd, you'd zoom out and then there would just be a little black square, and you're like, oh no. Like you missed one, one little cube in the whole thing, and it's like, how do I go back and get that one? I don't know. So. Um, being able to make sure that you're almost guaranteeing everything will run to completion or you know it fails is, is an important thing for us. Um, all right. So the next thing I want to talk about is a little bit more complicated, but something I was really 
happy with when we got it working was this ingest workflow. And this is kind of how we, um, we broke Lambda, which was cool. So uh, the problem here is you've got all these universities creating data. They store it in their own random, unique way um, on their own whatever infrastructure from you know, the Allen Institute for, um, for Brain Science. They have you know, essentially like enterprise grade engineers and infrastructure, and it's all organized, and it's great. Um, but then they have a really small internet connection to someone like Harvard, where they're awesome, but it's all homegrown in the lab. Um, but they have like this crazy internet connection, this huge pipe. And so it's, it's all over the place. People store it all differently. And so how can we build something that supports all these users um, and can meet the needs of the program? Namely that, you know, everybody waits the last minute probably guarantee you that you know, right before the deadline, everyone's going to be sending us data as hard as they can. And so we needed to build something that could scale really, really well um, to transfer these large amounts of data, get them into the cloud, get them reformatted um, so they are now you know, in the boss cuboid structure, loaded, indexed, um, and ready to go. And so we implemented this kind of, kind of ETL process that uses SQS, S3, Lambda, DynamoDB, and uh, a Python-based client that runs both multi-process and distributed. Um, and with just that kind of uh, setup, which we'll talk about in detail, we're able to, again, when no one's loading, sending us data, we don't want to keep anything on. So when no one's sending us data, nothing's happening. And then as soon as someone decides to uh, start a job, we don't even need to know about it. They click a button, upload this file, things start rolling, and everything just starts to scale. So. I'll kind of step you through how this process works um, because it's a little, can be a little confusing, but it, it's pretty interesting. So um, again, because it's on demand and you can't be prepared for it, uh, you need things to kind of be automated. And so the way this works is we have a pretty simple JSON spec that specifies the ingest job, like how big is the, th the data set, um, you know, what's the size of the image tiles, what's the name of the project it's loading into, pretty simple stuff like that, and we have a tool that kind of helps configure that. Um, so basically, you just post this JSON spec to our API. So again, that's the only machine we really need to manage ourselves. You say, here's, the, uh, here's what I'm about to do. Our, uh, our system quickly then generates an upload task queue um, in SQS, and enumerates basically every file that needs to get up, put up into the system. And this is interesting in that you know, SQS scales really, really well. You can do tons of requests to it, but it's a little odd that you can't put messages into it that quickly. You can only do up to like 35 at a time, I think. And so from a single thread, um, it actually takes a long time. You know, we'll have a data set will be millions of files that need to get, need to get written. Um, and in phase two, it's going to be even more, like tens of millions or more at a time. And so to actually populate a task queue, an SQS queue with like a million files takes like hours if you do it single thread. So we ended up actually using another little step function that when that user says, do this job, we figure out all the files that need to get generated based on this information they gave us. Um, and then we fan out on, S on Lambda a bunch of workers to just j jam all these t tasks um, into an SQS queue. And once that's full, Oh yeah, I have a little animation, see? So those messages go up in that queue in parallel. Um, and once that's done, the system now is like ready to go, ready to ingest. Uh, those, that step function's gone, those lambda functions are gone. Um, and this other kind of serverless infrastructure pops up where 
um, this client we wrote, this ingest client, like I said, you can run it multi-threaded, distributed, so uh, the Harvard team that really stress test, helped us stress test this in the beginning, um, you know, they run this on two big beefy boxes uh, that are both connected to Internet 2, and so they can really shove a lot of data up to us, which is pretty interesting. And so the way this works, and why it's like resilient, again, we've got to make sure every single file gets in. We can't drop a single file or else you lose, you know, if you have one bit of missing data, you've corrupted this data set. And so the way it works is that ingest client thread just says, give me a task, just gets a message from an SQSQ, and that message tells it what file to send up. And so it loads the file using some, a little like plug-in for that specific person and how their data gets loaded, and writes that data up into an S3 tile bucket. So it's this like a temporary bucket we provision when you start this job. And that bucket has a trigger that calls a Lambda function. So every time you put a, fu um, a function, I mean, every time you put a file into that bucket, triggers a Lambda function. And that Lambda function then, um, oh, I clicked too fast. So what this happens, this happens over and over and over, right? And the Lambda function checks this index table in, Dyna in DynamoDB that's keeping track of all the files that have made it successfully up into this bucket. Because, like I said, we've got this three-dimensional representation of our data. So we can't load any data in until we get enough in 3D. So this thing's sitting there waiting, 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 and as soon as there's enough of a t tiles in a specific region, it's all good to go, and we actually invoke uh, asynchronously another Lambda function that then goes and pulls those temporary tiles, reformats them into our little cube representation, writes them into S3, and updates an index table. And now that data is available. Like if you, again, if you have a Viz, or Viz tool open, as that's running, you'll start seeing data pop up. Um, as soon as it's in that index table, you can read it. Um, and so this, uh, oh yeah, and then it deletes temporary data tiles. And so this workflow, um, has been really useful in that it lets us you know, scale on demand, be highly um, resilient to temporary errors. You know, we've had trouble with you know, a network issue all of a sudden, drop a bunch of tiles, uh, fail a bunch of Lambda writes, but because it's based on this SQS queue, that's just the task. That task doesn't get deleted until the very end. And so if that file didn't make it up after the timeout, um, it's just going to show back up and show, show up in the queue again, and one, some worker thread is going to grab that and re-upload it again. And so we've been able to get pretty reliable transfer rates. Um, you know, we peaked over with some initial testing, again, just with, just with two machines uh, and kind of small tiles, so it wasn't really optimized, but, you know, we were getting bursts over four gigabits per second, sustained around three gigabits per second. Um, so we were able to load, just run, sustained at three gigabits per second through this fully serverless workflow um, and not have to scale any of our infrastructure. You know, we still had an API server to running if that, and this thing scales out. Um, I want to say something like 1,500 Lambda functions, maybe a little bit more, kind of in parallel, always going. Um, DynamoDB scaling automatically, and we're able to stream all this data uh, from this on-prem site right into the system. And so another interesting um, kind of side effect of how this was built was because we built it straight on Amazon's services, um, you know, we do have some users, and in general, you know, you maybe you don't have an internet connection that can send two petabytes. It'll just take too long. Um, you don't have an internet to connection. You don't, you don't have the bandwidth. And so uh, there's some work 
and some, some work we're going to be doing to enable using Snowball. So since this runs off of a bucket trigger, you just upload the tiles with the ingest client into the Snowball instead of sending over the internet. Snowball shows up at Amazon. They plug it in. As those files hit that bucket, they just kick through the same exact process with like minimal code change. Um, which is a really nice way to be able to go both from just streaming it over the web, which is preferred from, from our perspective, but also if you can't, just send a snowball. Um, and so what's nice about this design and why we did this way is, you know, this ingest rate is limited by the user's local resources and bandwidth. We never wanted, uh, you know, somebody waiting on us to scale out or, you know, if we crash, how do we pull it back, get the data in, how do we catch up? It's basically, you know, because we just sit straight on top of Amazon's infrastructure, uh, if the user can send us the data, as fast as the user can send us the data, we've been able to, to load it into the system. Um, and so now, uh, I want to just touch on a couple things we learned through this process of, um, you know, trying to really implement uh, some interesting serverless workflows in the system. And so the first is some things to think about when you're, if you want to start using Lambda for something you're working on. Um, well, actually, I guess not anymore, but, you know, they got announced today they can go up to three gigabytes in memory, but, you know, Lambda isn't a cure-all, it's not a panacea, it's not going to work in all use cases. We have some use cases where we wished we could use Lambda, but we needed more memory. Maybe now we can do that since they've upped it to three. Um, but for tasks that are well-suited for Lambda, it's awesome, in my opinion. Um, and so some things to keep in mind is that, again, if your task needs to run more than five minutes or over three gigabytes of memory, probably is going to be a good solution for you. Uh, but if it's under that, it might be. Um, another thing to think about is more memory equals more CPU. This can be counterintuitive because that means you're going to be paying for more money per 100 millisecond of execution, but your Lambda function might run faster. So this is an interesting thing that, to play with and optimize once you get things working is um, if you only need you know, the minimum amount of memory, but it's a kind of CPU-intensive process, if you actually add more memory, you get some more CPU allocation, and your function can finish faster and ultimately cost you less money. Um, so that's something to always think about optimizing after you get things working. And another interesting thing that's a limitation that might not be great is there's a, a limit to the, we use Python a lot, so there's a limit to like the virtual environment you upload to your Lambda function. It's 250 megabytes. And so you know, we pack in a bunch of image processing libraries and all sorts of things and eventually ran into not being able to actually upload or upload. We, somebody added like scikit-learn or something and then just we couldn't deploy our Lambda function anymore because it's too big. So, um, you know, you sometimes need to play games there and you can't just use a really giant um, uh, environment because you're limited. Um, and the other thing, too, that's kind of counterintuitive when you start, when you run into it for the first time, it, you'll, you'll be like, oh, okay. But the idea that Lambda capacity is tied to execution duration. So, if your Lambda function service, if your Lambda function calls anything external, so like DynamoDB, S3, or uh, RDS, anything, um, you now have to realize that network and external latencies ex um, affect your execution time, which effectively affects your capacity. So if you're chugging along and you're like not getting throttles and everything's happy, and then all of a sudden the latency to your d database doubles, you could just all of a sudden start getting throttles, and then everything cascades because then, Dyna, then Lambda will start retrying, and so you get even more. If you've got the Lambda capacity, uh, I mean, the Lambda limit set high enough, and eventually, um, you will, you know, everything will tumble and 
you know, like these dominoes just crash. Um, and so these cascading failures are an interesting thing to worry about. Um, and so you know, definitely recommend thinking about in your design, how can you implement some sort of circuit breaker or some sort of way to detect when uh, your latency is happening or if you're getting alarms due to throttles, what can you do to, to back things off gracefully um, and deal with your, 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 your limit um, to get back? Because otherwise, you know, in, a, in the beginning when we didn't really know how to deal with this, we kind of just would have to be like, everybody stop what you're doing and then wait for like, all the Lambda functions to like, echo through the system because they'll keep retrying and eventually you're like, back in business and then once we realize, oh, it's because um, you know, this network thing was configured wrong or this database wasn't quite right. Um, but being able to have that circuit breakers in there from the beginning so you can shut things off and get back to good is, is, is kind of important. Um, and, uh, oh yeah. And so we use DynamoDB a lot, and again, we ran into some interesting problems there. Um, I love DynamoDB. I think it's awesome, but it's also the same thing. It's not the solution for everything. We ran into some challenges where we got, we had, you know, I had this spreadsheet, we went through, and we're like, oh, this will work great, this won't be a problem. And then, of course, uh, somebody did something we didn't quite expect, and we ended up having a bunch of really large key, a bunch of really large values in a couple keys that were getting hit a lot. And that eventually caused us to have some crazy, um, dynamo, uh, crazy dynamo throttling events that we couldn't figure out. Um, and so you have to remember that, you know, Object size drives capacity. So the bigger an object gets, the more capacity that write or read operation consumes. Um, which again is maybe a little counterintuitive. And also, if your users can influence that size of that object, if it's not a fixed size, um, which in our case, uh, you know, these, a key was storing an index. And if the user was writing data spatially very big region, which we didn't anticipate happening, that key started getting bigger and bigger and bigger to the point where. Um, you know, that largest record size uses 400 times the capacity of the smallest size record you can write. So it's something to keep in mind. Um, and another thing to kind of be aware of is, you know, when you're paying for capacity, you're actually paying for partitions. Um, and so the big challenge with Dynamo that we ran into is this idea of like the hot partition. This is when you have a reader write to this, to a bunch of reader writes to the same, um, keys that are in the same partition. And so, uh, you know, Dynamo is metering you at, at one second. So you've got, if you've got lots of fast operations, the same partition in your Dynamo table, um, you, you're, you can burn up your capacity really quickly and you'll be surprised because you'll go and look and you'll be like, oh, my requests seem so much farther down from where my line is, if you're looking like in CloudWatch or something. Um, it looks like I have so much capacity, what's going on? And it's because you're probably hitting all your capacity is spent in the same partition. And so, um, you know, the expensive way to fix that is you double your capacity. If you double your capacity, you'll split the partition and most likely you'll be good to go. Um, but you can also try to change your key design and a big thing to do is always try to spread your keys around on the partitions, right? So if you, pre all of our keys on, on, in Dynamo, we prepend a hash, um, a kind of a deterministic hash that we know we can recreate. So we can say the key that we know, um, let me hash that and generate this deterministic hash and prepend it so that every key is kind of spread around at random along your partitions and it kind of helps with this issue of a hot partition, which is probably one of the big things you'll run into if you really start, um, you know, haven't been too thoughtful in the design of your keys or just having an interesting use case where it happens. And so, um, yeah. And then, 
And then scaling up. So we built the system. It worked pretty good. We were like high fives all around the table. And then our partners at Harvard were like, OK, how, much, how fast can we send you the data? And I'm like, I don't know, just whatever you think you can do. And the guy's like, OK. And he fires it up, and like instantly everything explodes. And so um, this is when we did our, took us a while to figure this out. We actually ended up getting on like a live stream with three uh, AWS engineers that were on the back end doing something. And we were getting this interesting failure mode where everything's chugging along, great. And then all of a sudden, just Lambda functions were disappearing in the ether. There was no logging. We had like no idea what was happening. Um, and one of the engineers was just like, I got an idea. And he goes in and just sets our ENI limit, which is the elastic network uh, interface, to something really high. And all of a sudden, like 20,000 Lambda functions fired off in unison. And so we were like, OK, this is what's going on. And which is really interesting is that you have to remember um, what we were doing is we were projecting our VPC, or we were projecting the Lambda function into a VPC. And so when you do that, you've got to set up your network and you know, attach whatever subnets you want to do. And every time you do that, you use an ENI. You actually use a network adapter, which we didn't really realize. And we're not heavy EC2 instance users, right? We're using all the serverless stuff. So our, um, currently, I think it's still this way, like your ENI limits tied to your EC2 limits. So if you, don't, if you haven't never turned up your EC2 uh, limits, you have the stock ENI limit. And so if you try to do anything complex with a couple subnets on your Lambda functions and use lots of Lambda functions, it doesn't work, um, which is really took us to spend a lot of time to figure that one out. But when we did, everything worked great. Um, so that's a big thing to remember. Also, another thing we kind of failed with um, in the beginning, too, is um, if you do project your Lambda function into your VPC, you have to make sure your network architecture can handle the bandwidth. It's kind of this thing you take for granted. You're like, this works great, and then Lambda fans out. You forget there's now like 2,000 versions of whatever code running, and if it's moving uh, you know, a couple megs around, all of a sudden your network infrastructure needs to make sure that you can handle that. So we had some misconfigured you know, S3 endpoints and internet gateways and, and whatnot, and once you kind of get that going, um, it was very important. And again, also, uh, we did a thing where if you're using S3 heavily, you can pre-shard your bucket. Um, this was a big thing for us as well. Team was streaming us data. Ended up we were creating so many objects so fast, S3 started throttling us and saying, wait, you can't do that. Um, and we weren't gracefully handling that, and so things tipped over again. Um, but you can actually go and have your bucket pre-sharded, and then you won't get those throttle events from S3, which is really great. Um, for DynamoDB, use auto-scaling. We were previously using a third-party tool um, that ran in Lambda and, upped your, and checked your metrics and updated uh, your capacity for you automatically, but now it's all built in, which is awesome. And one thing to know about Dynamo auto-scaling, which is kind of, we learned um, hard way, but you know, Dynamo, can, Dynamo can scale up infinitely, but you can only go down four times a day. So um, I think they take that into account pretty well in the built-in Dynamo auto-scaling, but that's something to keep in mind. Like you'll see this thing step up real nicely as your capacity goes, and then it'll stay high even if your load drops off and then come down eventually throughout the day. Um, and uh, again, also look into error and log aggregators. It gets really complicated, and AWS has been building tools or some third-party vendors. Um, but you know, when you start uh, doing things at scale and they tip over, it's really hard to figure out what happened. And so our original, like, at the very beginning, we're like, all right, we'll just send errors to an S SNS topic that sends me a text message. And that ended very poorly one night when my wife was like, what's going on with your phone? And, um, and literally, 
I didn't think iOS could do that, but um, <laughs> that's, not, that's not sped up, and this ran for like 10 minutes. I got like, like 15,000 text messages or something insane. Um, so don't do that. Use some sort of log aggregator or you know, something like Sentry or X-Ray or something like that to help you debug your, your serverless applications because it can get really complicated, especially things where at, things are at scale. You just kind of have no idea what's going on um, at some times. Uh, and so still have a little bit of time left. I'm going to show you a little quick demo. We'll see how this works with uh, Wi-Fi. Uh, might be questionable. But so the culmination of all this work, this is an actual data set uh, generated by um, the Allen Institute, did the electron microscopy in Princeton. Uh, Sebastian Sung's lab in Princeton did the reconstruction, uh, the segmentation. And so what we're seeing here is this is this web viewer, um, which is kind of cool. It's open source. It was actually built by Google. It's called NeuroGlancer. Um, Google's doing a little bit of work in this space as well. And it's kind of been adopted by a bunch of people in the community. We took it added in our auth plugin, a couple of little things to it, and this is now integrated with our single sign-on service, and so any user that can go in our system can open up any data set and just view it in this, this uh, WebGL-based viewer, and so I can kind of you know, go up and down, and what you're seeing is in the top left is kind of the in-plane view, and then the, on the right, you have these orthogonal views that are lower res because uh, you know, we have this, this, that slicing that happened, and what you're seeing here is actually you know, this greenish thing is one piece of a neuron, this purplish thing here is another piece of a neuron, this, this darker highlighted region is actually a synapse detection, and this was all done using computer vision, automatically, automatic analysis. Um, and so I can, like I said, scroll up and down, I can like, let me turn off something, you know, you can do this, and I can, you know, scroll, which is kind of cool, and zoom way out, and, It'll load from dynamically, um, and so you can see all these little different colored uh, circles are actually neuron cell bodies, and this big white thing is a blood vessel, and it's actually pretty impressive that this was done automatically and it worked, and, and now um, trying to go into scale. And what's also cool is we can do 3D rendering, and so each one of these labels, it's a volumetric image, you can mesh them, you can render them using WebGL, um, and so what we're seeing here is um, you know, this orange neuron and this uh, blue neuron, they get nice and close, which is kind of interesting, and I can carefully right-click there. Let me zoom in a little bit. Oops. I'm not used to not doing it on a mouse. But it's interesting, you can, like, zoom in and move around, and it gives, you know, users this interesting way to kind of actually inspect the data, which... Um, you know, like I said, we do lots of automatic analysis, but being able to just go and visualize it right there is incredibly useful for people, especially the data generators. They upload this stuff, they can go in, they can look at it, they can share something interesting with a collaborator. Um, it's been really useful for people, and it also looks really cool, in my opinion. Um, and, yeah, let me go back over here. So all that was being loaded kind of dynamically, from the system over the Wi-Fi. Um, that's a smaller data set. This was from phase one. This is a couple terabytes, but um, you know, because we can do these arbitrary cutouts with the resolution hierarchy, you can, you know, over the internet, just access it and analyze the data. 
So just want to give a couple quick acknowledgments to this project because it is so huge. And all the data I showed you and all of the work was done by these awesome groups. Um, so you know, the boss was built at JHUAPL uh, with a great team. Um, and we have some collaborators at Johns Hopkins University proper and Randall Burns' lab. And you know, IARPA ran this program, three major teams, all those universities on the far side, all those logos, um, everyone participating in this program. It's a huge collaborative effort. Um, it's been, it was incredibly fun to work on. And um, if you go to uh, GitHub, we have all of our code. The whole system is open source, so you can actually see a lot of um, ways we've implemented these things. Uh, Heaviside, again, is a tool you can use. It's open source as well. In our GitHub organization, it's github.com slash jhuapl dash boss. There's also a website now called bossdb.org, and all of our stuff is on there. There's a paper that kind of goes in a little bit more detail on what the architecture is like, um, and that's the program website. Um, so, yeah, that's it. Thank you very much.